Thank you, Fred. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Lord, we praise you, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for your mercy in giving us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that um, through your word, you would help us to see more of who we are, of who we are in Christ, and what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, why church? Apparently, for many, church is the most difficult part of being a Christian. Um, I guess that shouldn't be a surprise. The church generally can seem pretty unimpressive with its supposedly declining numbers, crumbly buildings, irrelevant messages, out-of-date practices, and sometimes hypocritical leaders. What's more, coming to church is less comfortable than staying in your pajamas on a Sunday morning. It's less engaging than watching something on Netflix or Disney Plus. It's less entertaining than Sky Sports. It's less fun than seeing friends at the pub. It's less important, perhaps, than going to the supermarket. It's more awkward than visiting our own families. It's more socially demanding than going to work. It's more difficult to get something out of when accompanied by children. It's more boring for them than playing sports on a Sunday or gaming at home. And so disappointed or disillusioned with the church, some are tempted simply to drop out or to swap churches or to only attend occasionally. Why church? Why bother? Well, before we can answer the why, we must answer the what. What is the church? If we grasp the what, the why is easy. And that's what this passage from 1 Peter 2 helps us with today. After teaching us about the nature of salvation, how we are made God's people in chapter 1, Peter now turns his attention to the nature of the church, what we are as God's people and what that means for us. And we've seen something of that already over the past couple of weeks. But Peter's teaching on the church crescendos here in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Now, it's not all there is to know about the church, but nevertheless, this little portion of scripture is, is a bit like a Milky Way's milkshake, which we had yesterday, if any of you have had one of those. It contains full fat, highly consecrated, um, consecrated? Um, I'm thinking about community. <laughs> highly concentrated uh, theology, and it's heavenly. Now, there are two crucial things for us to grasp, both of which have the power to transform our view and attitude towards the church. The first is this. The church is founded on Christ. The church is founded on Christ. Now, in the building of the temple, the first stone to be laid was the cornerstone. Um, I have a brick here. It's not the finest of stones, but the cornerstone was the finest of stones, specially prepared and chosen because of its exact 90-degree angle. All the other stones that would be laid would be laid in reference to the cornerstone. 
And for that reason, the cornerstone was the most important, the most precious, the most honored even uh, stone in the whole building. And building in line or on top of that stone ensured that the whole construction was both aesthetically pleasing and stable. On the other hand, if you were to build something on top of a misshapen cornerstone or even no cornerstone at all, it would lead only to one thing, collapse. Well, listen again to how Christ is described here. Verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And verse 6, quoting Isaiah the prophet, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, the spiritual household of God. He is the foundation upon which the whole structure, uh, on which everything else is built and rests. Without him, there is no building, no church. So ultimately, the church is not upheld by us, not the people, not the PCC, not the staff team, not the clergy, not our financial situation, not anything. The church is only as strong as its cornerstone, which is a mighty relief because that stone is Jesus Christ and it won't collapse on him. Now, there are some cornerstones visible on buildings today, um, but at the risk of being corrected by our resident architect, um, quite often they're just on display as um, mere ornaments. Um, sometimes they're even put on the, on the front of the building. They're just there to look nice or to commemorate something. Now, Christ isn't a cornerstone like that. He's not a, a cornerstone just by name or ornament only. He's the one upon which everything else is built. But notice in this passage, that doesn't mean that he's inactive or immobile like the literal piece of rock that held the temple in place. No, Christ is the living stone. He is the Lord of life, who was sent into the world to bring about new birth. He's the appointed Messiah. That's what um, is meant by chosen, whose resurrection is the cornerstone of our life as God's people. And he lives today. He is present amongst his people, and he is actively building his church. And so verse 5, we also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That is, a, a temple of God's dwelling, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. The church is founded on Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us here at St. Paul's? Well, at least three things. First, it means that we are immensely privileged. The promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets like Isaiah, now extend to us, even here in this place. God's promises to dwell in the midst of his people, to redeem and cleanse them, uh, from sin, to give them unhindered access to the Lord in a renewed world, have broadened beyond this little nation of Israel to us. We've been grafted in 
like an extension. We are now part of the structure as living stones. Through Christ's once for all sacrifice and his ministry to us as high priest, we've been welcomed into God's household forever. That's something surely never to be taken for granted. Sometimes people worry about the language of being chosen or predestined by God. Why some but not others, they might say. But the wonder here is not that God chooses some and not others. The wonder is that God chooses any at all. The people of God are a chosen people, but not a choice people. There's nothing in us that deserves God's favor. Quite the opposite. It is out of his sheer love that God chooses the foolish, the weak, the despised, sinners, as we've already seen this morning, and brings them in. And for that reason, there can be no arrogance in the church. We're all just plain stones made alive and built onto Christ. Which leads to a second implication. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. Verse 5 again. We also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. On Friday night, this coming week, I'm going to watch my favorite rugby team, uh, Harlequins, play against the Bristol Bears at their home ground, the Stoop. It'll be the first time in a long time that I'll be able to cheer and chant in a stadium full of supporters. Um, I've enjoyed watching the Quins, especially last season when they unexpectedly won the Premiership title um, on telly. Well, I watched them on telly. They were playing for real. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it's not the same thing as being part of the crowd. Apart from my brother, I probably won't know anyone else in the stadium. But for 80 minutes, there'll be about 14,000 people all united in their support of our team, of one thing. Well, in a far, far greater way, being part of the church is like that. You don't select the people around you, the stones around you. They're people of God's choosing. But being united by Jesus Christ, we are being built together into a spiritual house. Now, what's a spiritual house? Well, it's spiritual because it doesn't have walls made out of bricks and, and mortars. In that sense, you can't see it. Rather, it's made out of living stones, people, Christ's people. And it's a house because it's a place of dwelling. Specifically, it's a place where God dwells with his people. And in the past, as uh, many of you will know, that, that was the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem, uh, where, where, which signified God's dwelling with his people. But now that Christ has come, that temple, that physical place of gathering in the building is made redundant. The church built upon Christ is the dwelling place of God. So you cannot divorce the church from Christ. And Christians can't divorce themselves from the church. If you want to meet with God, you need the church, however imperfect or incomplete it currently is. You know, there is no perfect church because it's still being built. 
If you're looking for the complete church, you'll be waiting a very long time. You'll be waiting, in fact, until glory for that to be revealed. And so as we continue to emerge and learn from lockdown, there will be many, many things that aren't quite as we want them, aren't quite as they should be here at St. Paul's. But building projects, as we all know, take time. We'll need patience with one another and humility to acknowledge that we're all mere recipients, all mere stones of God's choosing, recipients of his mercy and grace. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. And third, we participate in the project. Just as Christ, the living stone, is alive and active in his church, so we, like living stones, are called to be part of it. Specifically here it says, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, now, we've had a, quite a lot of interaction this morning, which is wonderful, but um, I'll give you one more question. Um, we'll direct it to the young people first, I think. But can any of the young people remember what part the priests played in the temple in the Old Testament? Anyone remember what a priest did in the Old Testament? We might need to extend beyond the young people um, if they're not quite sure. Let's, oh, we've got a scratch of the head from Ruben. <laughs> Maybe, he, he probably does know. Okay, adults, let's, let's, um, let's help out. What, what part did the priest, Jonathan, thank you. They offered sacrifices, yes. Anything else? That's, that's one of the important, Jeanette, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. They were set apart. We've heard about being holy this morning, haven't we? And the priests were set apart. They were designated holy to offer sacrifices and to pray to God on behalf of the people. So only they had access to the inner part of the temple, which symbolized God's holy presence. But now, on the basis of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice and his high priestly ministry, we too... Each one of us, as Christian people, have been made priests. Which means that we enjoy the privilege of full and free access to God through Jesus Christ. But again, the sacrifices we make as a holy priesthood are not with the blood of animals as a substitute for sin. Like the physical temple, those things, those ceremonial aspects of the sacrifice are no longer necessary. Instead, we offer spiritual sacrifices, i.e. the dedication of our lives in response to God's grace. Now, there are many, many avenues to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Of course, it involves thanksgiving and prayer and praise. Remember those um, words that we began the service with. We've come together to offer um, praise and thanksgiving to God. It involves loving God and loving our neighbor. It might involve the giving of our time to serve in some capacity at church, running the AV desk as Abby's doing this morning, or helping with shine, or delivering things to those in need, or visiting the sick, or driving someone to church volunteering to help get the children's Sunday groups up and running again. And also, off the back of what we've heard from Nellie and Steve today, 
It might involve giving from what we have towards the Lord's work. Uh, some of you may have received a letter yesterday about supporting Steve Short's ministry. Uh, you may or may not know that Steve is currently a non-stipendary minister, which means that he doesn't draw a stipend from the diocese. Instead, Steve pays his bills by working part-time in his, in his business with his business partners, and um, he's supplemented through the, generos the, the generosity of other individuals who want to support his part in our ministry here. We'd also love to develop something of a building project in time, as you know, and the building project plans remain on the wall over there. And those are just two of the things on top of the day-to-day -day and week-by-week -week costs of running the church, which we saw on the, on the screen and, and heard from Nelly. If you want to support some of those things, do consider reviewing your finances and, and chat to Nelly about how you can give to the church. But please don't mishear me in all this. Please don't give out of compulsion or guilt. Part of offering a spiritual sacrifice, acceptable to God, as Peter says here, is giving as an act of worship in response to God's grace, with a heart of thankfulness to God for his love. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So the church is founded on Christ. What a privilege to be part of it and to join in with it. Second, the church is found in Christ. If you just scan the passage again, notice how some of the words and designations given to the Lord Jesus Christ are also given to God's people. He is the living stone. We are the living stones, verse 5. He is chosen by God and precious to him. We are a chosen people and God's special possession, verse 9. Now, how is it that Peter can possibly describe the church in the same way as Jesus Christ? After all, Jesus is the divine son and the perfect man, the one chosen before all creation, as we've heard about previously in 1 Peter, the rightful heir to the inheritance, the precious lamb who's now been glorified. How? Well, because the church belongs to Christ. More than that, actually, we are incorporated into Christ. We're connected to him, grafted to him, united to him. So we've not just been saved by Christ. We not only follow after Christ. We're not only waiting for Christ. We live in Christ. We are his. Now again, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we share in his access to the Father. We share in the benefits of his obedience. We share in his resurrection and glory. We share in his status as the heir to that promised inheritance which, which can never perish, spoil, or fade. We share in the Lord's look of love, of his infinite and unending love upon his son. 
we share in his goodness and in his wonderful light. That's what it means. That's why he's so precious to those who believe. How could we ever reject that? And yet, as Peter writes in this passage, there are some who, well, even to whom these promises were first given, who still reject Christ. They wanted to build their lives on something else, not the cornerstone, which in the end is their downfall. All good builders, I'm sure Peter, our resident architect, will tell you, all good builders know that they need to follow the architect's design. Otherwise, it's going to go seriously wrong. He's laughing. I'll, I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, there can only be one suitable response to God for Christ, the cornerstone. Just one, love and praise. Peter writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now that doesn't mean that life as a Christian and life in the church is always happy and easy. As we'll see in future weeks, part of sharing in Christ also involves sharing in his suffering. The rejection of Jesus Christ we see around us can also be directed at those who are united to him. Moreover, we continue to suffer the consequences of sin in the world, the brokenness, the pain, the strife. But in Christ who lives, we have a living hope. A, a beautiful recent example of that to me was Cynthia Watson. For months on end, Cynthia suffered the breaking down of her body. And she wrestled with why God had not taken her yet. And yet she continually looked to the Lord for her comfort and hope. In the best way she could, she offered spiritual sacrifices to God, even in her, in, her, in her bed, by praying to him each day and giving thanks for that day that the Lord granted her. And she read the Psalms for as long as she was able to. In the end, she was ready to die, but not because her body was tired, and she was tired of life, but because she was utterly secure in Christ. In Christ. So, as we close, why church? Why bother? Well, because the church is much more than what we do. As Jeanette said, it is who we are. We are stoned, joined together, are founded on Christ and are being built into an unshakable house of God's dwelling. And our gathering here this morning is, is another picture of that. But, you know, it's much more than a picture, too. We share in the spiritual reality of God's presence because we are also found in Christ. We are his people and his special possession. Therefore, as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says... 
Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that, that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Amen. Thank you so much, Jake. Um, we're about to sing another song 